Hey everyone, Vic here. Uh, welcome to Church at Home. Today uh, will be week two from the book of Haggai, a brand new series that we uh, started last week. And uh, last week we did learn a few things. We learned, first of all, that um, the people uh, of Haggai's time and Haggai's day, they had neglected the job of completing the temple. They started it, but uh, initially there was opposition that they faced and that caused them to stop working. But uh, over time, it kind of resulted in them stopping caring, actually, about God's priorities. And so they were, at that stage, more concerned with their own homes and their own well-being than actually concerned with God's purposes and God's temple in particular. And so Haggai comes on the scene and, uh, and calls them out. Uh, and of course, God's temple, as we learned last week, was the, um, the place that, uh, that the nation would go to to atone for their sin, to make sacrifices. And ultimately, it was the place where God's manifest presence was made known. known. His glory would dwell. And so in neglecting the temple... We learned that uh, the people of Haggai's day, uh, they were apathetic towards and they had grown indifferent towards their own sin and, and ultimately indifferent towards the very presence of God. And so they, their priorities shifted. Um, so we're going to continue uh, today uh, reading from chapter 1. Uh, again, verse 2, but we're going to go all the way through to verse 15, and we're going to see how did they respond to Haggai's message. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, follow along with me, otherwise this will be up on the screen. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. We'll read up until there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this, uh, this message to us in this time. I ask that you will help us to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to be like those people whom Haggai addressed, who responded favorably to your instructions. So we open our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to break up uh, today into six real uh, sections, six points, and uh, they're not cleverly titled other than I'm going to highlight aspects of certain verses, six of them in particular, and we'll draw some conclusions and lessons from them. So point number one is found in verses five and seven, where God says, consider your ways. He says that through Haggai to the people. Uh, And as you would have noticed, he said it twice, verse 5 and in verse 7. This week in our community group, one of our community group members was talking about something they learned in a Bible study where the person teaching said that, you know, in the the scriptures we don't see bold or italics. Uh, Those are things that we may have added ourselves as chapter headings and so on. But um, so if God wants to make a point in the scriptures, uh, he repeats it. You know, we kind of used to emojis and those kinds of things. But in the scriptures, when you read something twice or it's been repeated, twice. Uh, We have to stop and pay attention. It's really important. And so this is what's happening over here. God is saying to the people, consider your ways. He says it twice. And he's not just saying like, you know, see what you're doing and see how you're doing. But he wants them to also consider the outcome of their actions in particular. That's why he, he goes on by saying, hey, you know, look at, look at the results of your, your uh, shift in priorities. How's this working out? How's this turning out for you? Um, and obviously there's more to the statement than the physical deficits that we read about here. You know, read about, of course, the, the land um, uh, not, not uh, bringing forth uh, prosperity um, about them, clothing themselves, not being warm and and not having enough to eat and, and drink, you know. But I, I think that is more of a metaphor than anything else. There's a sense here that, that there's an illustration there. Uh, because their bags, for example, didn't really have holes in them. I mean, if you have a hole in your bag and the money falls out, you just patch it up. But God is kind of saying that this is the, the state of the nation. It's that there's a sense that uh, uh, the futility of prioritizing yourself over the Savior, over me, the Lord. Uh, I want you to see the results of your actions, that actually by pursuing yourself uh, and believing that you will be satisfied, it actually never delivers on that promise. Um, it never truly satisfies ourselves when we run after the things that we want ourselves. And, you know, the word self is a word that we are so familiar with in our culture today, is it not? We hear so much of that, self-actualization, self-help, self-care, self-defense, self-made people, self-obsessed people, self-preservation, and the list just goes on. I actually went to my Google web browser and I typed self, space, and then I started with A. I wanted to see what it uh, uh, completed. Then I did self B, self C, self D. It's fascinating if you do that exercise yourself. But you know, this whole culture of an emphasis on the self, uh, um, is, it, it cuts right across the words of Jesus. It cuts right across what Jesus said when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What it means to be a Christian 
is not to pursue ourselves, but rather to deny ourselves. And yes, you might object and say, well, wait a minute, didn't um, Jesus say, and didn't he quote a commandment where he says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, self-love is, is in there. And absolutely, it's a good point you're making. Um, but we are to love ourselves uh, only to provide a framework and a context for us to understand loving our neighbors, which often requires us denying ourselves for the benefit of our neighbor. So to love our neighbor in that command is actually the point. The point is to love our neighbor. Uh, that is the end. And to love yourself, well, that is almost the, the means in a sense. It's, it's for you to understand and help to make sense of what it means to love your neighbor. Okay, so, um, but, but as we continue reading here, point number two actually gives us an answer to this problem of a self-centeredness and a pursuit of self, uh, you know, building our own paneled houses and being busied with our own house and neglecting the kingdom and the house of God. And uh, verse two, sorry, not verse two, in verse eight, uh, God says, hey, uh, you know, go up to the hills, bring wood, build my house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified. There, there you have it. That's, that's the answer. Uh, this is the key to the, the problem, is asking the question, what brings God pleasure? What brings Him pleasure? What makes Him happy? And asking the question, what brings Him glory? What, what magnifies Him? What puts Him on the throne? That, that would help us battle the self-centeredness that we see in our culture and that we maybe uh, feel the pressure to, to, uh, to obey and to follow their example. Is stopping and saying, God, is this about what brings me pleasure? Or, or, or is this about what brings you pleasure? In this moment, is this about what makes me happy? Because I want, to, want you to be happy with my actions. I want you to be glorified with what I'm doing here. I, I don't want the credit for things. I want you to get the credit for things. Your glory and your pleasure. And that's the claims of Christianity. It, it, we believe, genuinely believe, it's the truth, that we are satisfied completely and most satisfied when God is most glorified in our lives. Think about that. You will be most satisfied. You'll be the happiest when God is most glorified in your life. And this approach to life is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Is by daily asking the question, God, is what I'm doing here pleasing you? Are you smiling upon this or are you frowning upon this? Is what I'm doing here robbing you of your glory? Is it making much of me or is it making much of you? And it's that discipline that you can apply in all of your life. You know, what it means to be a Christian it's not to just, you know, do things, you know, once a week, you know, around a Sunday moment, around going to church or reading your Bible or praying. Um, actually, all of life, uh, uh, you can follow Jesus. You can apply these questions. You can ask these questions in every area of life. Because obviously, priority in God's house, as we re read it here in Haggai, does not mean that you have to neglect your home. Neglect your family. You know, when God says, hey, you're busy with your paneled houses while my house lies in ruin. He's not saying, don't look after your family. Don't look after, don't, don't be responsible, a responsible citizen. No, of course not. We see in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 to 9, you know, where, where, where the commandments are given. And God is saying, I want this to be a part of your life. I want to be central to your home. I want to be central to society. Talk about this around your meal times. Write this on the, your doorpost. You know, when you're walking, when you lie down, when you sit. All of life, I want to be central. Uh, we see that again in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, where Joshua says, Hey, as for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. And so there is a way to put God first in your family. It doesn't mean that when you, you know, prioritize His house, you neglect your house. No, um, there, there's a way that you can model th- that, that, that God is a priority to your kids, to your spouse, to your extended family, to the people around you. Because that's how discipleship works, by the way. Uh, when we are called to make disciples of other people, teaching them uh, to obey the commands of Jesus, uh, it's meant to be done in all of life. Because if Jesus is really first in every part of your life, well, that means that every part of your life can be a disciple-making moment. You can uh, walk alongside people uh, in the day-to-day and point them to Jesus through your actions, you know, where you live for God's pleasure and for God's glory. That means cooking a meal can be a discipleship moment, playing a board game, uh, building a shed, fishing, tobogganing, Uh, just running errands and taking someone with you. All of these moments, we can model what it means to give God glory and and, uh, live and act so that He may be pleased with our actions. Because there actually isn't a secular, a secular, sorry, a secular and sacred divide. If you merge the word secular and sacred, you get secular, which is not a real word, so ignore that. So the secular sacred divide isn't a real thing. Um, You know, living like a compartmentalized life, maybe that's how you think Christianity works, where, you know, there's sort of church and there's a few other religious things you do, and then there's the rest of your life, and the two never ever meet. Actually, uh, uh, maybe you're thinking that Jesus isn't relevant to the other aspects of your life. He has nothing to do uh, with or can add to your work or your hobbies or your friendships. And you know, if you have that perspective on Christianity and that perspective on Jesus, I want to be so bold as to say you're probably not a Christian uh, and uh, you need to uh, explore what it means to have faith in Jesus and to be a follower of Jesus a little more. Maybe join us on Alpha. That's where we do that kind of stuff. So that's an invitation to you if that's what you think. But you know, I I recently read an amazing book uh, called Strangely Bright uh, by a guy called Joe Rigney. And in that book, he actually encourages this, this aspect of Jesus in all of life, uh, in particular, resolving the tension that we sometimes have between loving God and enjoying life. You know, sometimes we feel guilty when we enjoy life because we think that to, to seek his kingdom first is to, and self-denial means not enjoying life. And he does a great job at, 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 at helping us resolve that tension. Um, you know, saying that it's not so much about loving God alone, which is which sounds really amazing. Yes, love God alone, um, but you know, thinking and doing so, you have to be disconnected from the real world. Um, he said, no, it's 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 about loving God in everything, uh, and and in everything, making sure that God is is loved most of all. You know, God is loved most in in everything. So let me give you a summary quote. You know, if you never read the book, I can summarize it with you. This is out of the book as well where he says, we have to enjoy God in everything and everything in God, knowing that God is greater and more satisfying than any and all of His gifts. Let me read that again. Enjoy God in everything and everything in God, knowing that God is greater and more satisfying than any and all of His gifts. Uh, and, you know, God in Haggai is wanting to make that point. So, so let's go to point number three, which we find in verses 10 to 11, where God says, you know, I know all these things that you, you do, I, I blew it away. That's actually in verse 9. Uh, you look for much, came to little, you brought it home, I blew it away. 
Okay, and, and God answers the question why in a moment. Verse 11 tells us that, you know, he, he called for a drought uh, and, the, and the heavens and the earth withheld its, its, uh, its, um, its blessing. That, that is an amazing thing because it points us to the fact that God is in control. He is sovereign. All right, that's the point here in these verses. He, he's a sovereign God. Um, and, and Haggai expands on this truth, on the sovereign God, when he talks about how God, you know, works with nations and kingdoms. And, and in the coming weeks, I trust when other, when other guys preach, you know, we'll, we'll underline this truth a little more. But, but you know, even in verse, verse 9, where God says, I, I blew it away, like he said, I, I'm, I'm in, in control of all these things. Why does he do that? Well, when we enjoy the gifts more than the giver, which is, alludes to that quote from Joe uh, Rigney, um, he intervenes in, in God's sovereignty. Okay, he turns creation on us so that we may turn to the creator. I want you to hear that. He turns it on us so that we can turn back to him. We'd forgotten. And so in his chastening of us, you know, there's a sense that they, they were living a little bit under the, the, the curses, the, uh, the covenant curses as they broke covenant with God, with God. So his chastening of them is actually his chasing after them. He, he turns creation on them so that they may turn to the Creator. His chastening of them is actually Him chasing after them. He's after them. That's amazing. I talked about that last week. He said, get the temple done because that's, I want to be near. I want to be close. I want to be at the, in the center with you guys. And so it's incredible to see, to see here that when we run from God, what does God do? He runs to us. Now, even in this, there's a hint to the gospel. This is how God ultimately is going to rescue us by running to us in the person of Jesus. Uh, and so he's saying to them, consider your ways. Think about you know, prioritizing yourselves. And, and, and I want you to see that it, it isn't ultimately satisfying because I am. And so I, you know, I orchestrate all these things so that you could see it's insufficient. So you could turn to me who is sufficient. That's why he says, consider your ways. And that's why he blows it away so that they would turn back to him. But you might think, okay, well, God is sovereign and to that extent. So what's the point of doing anything? You know, he's just going to get what he wants anyway. But even in this passage, we see that God's sovereignty doesn't justify passivity on our side that actually we are responsible and they were still needed to act responsibly. And so this is what we see. Point number four is in verse 12, where it tells us they respond to Haggai's message in obedience. Uh, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They, they feared the Lord. Uh, so they, they, they realized, okay, let's, let's start the job again. Let's get on with the job. And what it looked like for them very practically, verse 8 God kind of gives them a framework. He says, go up to the hills, bring the wood and, and build the house. Okay. And so those are sort of three little tips as to what, what responsibility for us might look like. You know, go up. Is this a change of tra trajectory? There's a, um, they're going in, a, in another direction. They've changed their minds. They've repented. It's a kind of repentance. Uh, he says, bring the wood. You know, there's a sense that, that the stuff you used on your houses, you repurpose those resources for God's house. So there's the sense that any, everything that we gain, that we own, it's all God's anyway. I love how wood is a, a bit of a metaphor of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, you know, because we tend and look after it and prune something so it may grow and water it. But the Bible even says that only God brings the growth. And so there's a sense that, you, that God provides, but you know, we, we, we play our part in that whole process. But, but we, we repurposes the, repurpose the resources for, for His house. And that's the third one. We build the house. And 
God was very specific in terms of what He wanted that house to look like, how, how they needed to build it. It wasn't just them saying, all right, let's see, let's, let's put our heads together and kind of come up with a new, a new design here. No, God was very specific in how He wanted that house to look. So it's His plans, His house, not my house. Um, and so that's, that's what they did. But I, I, I want to move on to another little thing you may not have noticed, but it says that the remnant obeyed Him. The remnant of the people and the word remnant really just means the dregs, the kind of leftovers. Like when the majority is gone, what is left over? The remnant, the, the, the smaller bit, the, the, the dregs. And, and uh, I want to say to you that when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to God, don't be surprised that when you are in, minor, in a minority, when it's just a few, just a handful, uh, everybody runs away from God, you said yes to God, that, that actually that, that, that those around you, um, is, the crowd is a little smaller. That's okay. That's okay for it to be a remnant when you obey. Uh, because we see also that it just takes a few people. It doesn't mean the majority needs to be uh, in on this for there to be uh, a positive effect for, for God to accomplish His purposes. Actually, just a few people that say yes to God is enough. Why is that? Well, because God is with them. As we continue to read here, we'll see His presence is with them. Because a minority that with God always outguns the majority, you know, because God is with them. You know, very little uh, amount plus God always equals more than anything else. Okay, and so and that brings us to our, our fifth point here, which is in verse 13, where he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. That's the promise that Haggai says. As they say yes to, to, to God, God responds by saying, I'm with you. And it's amazing that God's presence here forms the basis for their ongoing work. God's presence forms the basis. I want you to notice this, that they've hardly started working. Okay, they've hardly started working. They've just said, yes, okay, we will do it. Yes, we were wrong. God, you are right. We're going to shift our priorities. And God responds by saying, I'm coming near. Repentance, that's all it was at that moment. They changed their mind. They changed their direction. Re resulted in God drawing near. And that's what we know is true in the gospel, is that when we admit our sins, it's not that God goes, ah, oh, there you go. Now there's reason for distance between us. But actually, God closes that gap so beautifully. And grace in this moment is shown to them. What do I mean by that? Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. And, and there's a sense that they didn't earn this presence of God that He promises now through Haggai to them. They didn't earn it with a complete temple. It wasn't like the job is done, you know, the final nail was put into the, 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 the roof of this temple and it's done and then God's go, well done, you did what I told you to do, now I'll come near. It's like they just said yes, they hardly started uh, the, the, the job again. And God is there with them. His promise is there. This is grace shown to them. And this is the gospel. The gospel is not like religion, where, where religion says you have to work for God. You have to work for God's presence. You have to do the right things. You have to behave a certain way. You have to, you have to uphold that status so that God would come near to you. That's working for God. That's, that's the religion. The gospel is working with God. This is God coming close to them and then them partnering and working alongside God before they finish the job. It's, it's an amazing difference. The, the gospel is understanding that the presence of God is a gift. It's something we do not earn. It's something we receive. They have not earned it yet. They've just 
nodded their heads in obedience, and there, there is God's presence. Um, and, and we see that in verse 6, okay? Not verse 6, point number 6. Sorry, I keep getting my numbers wrong here. Uh, in verse 14, it tells us that the Lord stirred up the Spirit. He said, I'm going to be with you. He comes close, and then He stirs up the Spirit of the leaders, and He stirs up the Spirit of this remnant. Um, and so there was a sense that they were changed from the inside out. Not from the outside in, like the, their spirits were moved by the presence of God. And that resulted in them actually working in ways that their own efforts would not have been sufficient for. When we, when we do an outside-in thing, like uh, our, our efforts hoping it would change the inside, there isn't lasting change. But when God comes in and He stirs our spirits, He comes and fills us with His presence. And from the inside out, there's lasting change. Because the, I love this metaphor of stirring that He uses here. The, stir, the spirits were stirred. You think about stirring uh, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or, 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 or mixing a drink. When, when, you, when you stir it and you take out the, the stirring stick or the teaspoon, the, 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 the contents keeps moving. There's momentum. There's lasting change. It's not that as you take it out, it goes back to static or, uh, immediately. And we see that this happened with the people when God drew near. It's, it, there's a similarity to the, the first temporary temple. It was called the tabernacle, which was a, a tent that they pitched in the desert as they were uh, as a nation on their way to the promised land. And, uh, and it says that, that the people were stirred to build this. The people were stirred to give of their resources to, to help build this tabernacle. So much so that if you read Exodus uh, 35 onwards, uh, eventually uh, Moses had to say, okay, 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 enough, stop now. You guys are giving more than what, what is required. That's an amazing move. It shows you it's, it's more than just a, a, little, a little adjustment. It's lasting change. The same happened with the building of the temple that these guys are called to restore. When Solomon built a temple uh, uh, with David's resources, it tells us in 1 Chronicles 29 that they also moved with a willing heart. Their spirits were stirred. It's an incredible thing. And so this is, this is what happens. God draws near and His presence uh, provides the lasting change. He does the work in us, not we do the work. He, it's kind of like He does the work and then we, we do the work because he, he does the work. I hope that makes sense. And so He provides both the internal and the external resources. Um, later on, we see that you know, he talks about the gold and the silver being his. And so, yes, the internal resources, the motivation to do that, but then also the means, the external resources. Because, you know, there is blessing that comes with obedience. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, of course, when we obey God, they were disobedient and they lived in, 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 in lack. And so God's saying, come obey because there will be blessing. I do understand that. But I, and Matthew chapter 6 says, you know, seek first the kingdom of God. And these things that you really need will be added to you. There is blessing connected to obedience. But I, I hope I made the point that in the gospel here, we obey on the other side of forgiveness and grace. We don't obey in order to receive grace and forgiveness. Because of God's grace and His goodness and forgiveness, uh, we find ourselves obeying. That's, that's the sense here, that these guys were, were given the presence of God before they had done the job. It was, it was grace and God had, had in many way, you know, ways, just taken their repentance and said, it's sufficient. You know, I think of when I was a programmer uh, for a while before I came into full-time ministry. And the most basic uh, uh, aspect of a, or, or, or uh, you know, in a programming language is like the if-else statement. If this, then do that. If this, you know, then do this, else, do that. So if this doesn't happen, do that. If else or if this, then that. 
I hope that makes sense. And, uh, you know, the gospel actually, I believe, defies that kind of karma uh, kind of thinking where, you know, if you do this, then that will happen. Because of how amazing the, the, um, the, this is, you know. So if there's repentance, then you compare the blessings that come, the forgiveness. It far out, outweighs what you did. You can't basically say that that, that repentance warrants the blessing that comes your way. It, it really flips it on, on its head. It's not sort of one for one, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's like, if I obey God, the blessings that come, they, they far outweigh. They, they, it doesn't make any sense. It blows our mind. Um, this is how the gospel work, works. Because yes, I know God kept his word. As we read through Haggai here, they, they were experiencing, uh, or did experience judgment because they broke the covenant as a nation were taken into exile. But they're back now. They're back for like 18 years already. So, so God is true that, to His word that, that although, he, he, um, you know, although there was judgment for them breaking the covenant, He's, he's wanting to renew it. He, he brought a remnant back. He's, 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 he's working to, to, to stick to His word apart from their behavior. I mean, they're people who are apathetic. That for, for 18 years, they've kind of paid attention to themselves and not to God. I want you to see that actually any obedience that resulted in their hearts and, 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 and for us is not to earn anything from God. It's always on the other side of God's goodness. I, like I said, they, they're already back in, in the promised land. And they're already in blessing. And so we as, as Christians understand we never obey for the blessing or to be blessed. We are always understanding that we are already blessed. In Christ, we have everything. And as a result of that, we obey Him. So what does this mean for us? Well, I want us to uh, respond today during both the communion, which we'll do now, as well as the commissioning segment. And I, and I know that, that uh, city gators were reminded of this moment. And so maybe you are ready, you know, with, um, with your, your bread and, and your juice. Um, and uh, if not, that's okay. Uh, you can always do this after the service. But it's time for communion. Okay, so... Just as a reminder, uh, you know, that communion is something that Christians do, followers of Jesus. Um, we do this regularly. And so if you are still exploring Christianity, uh, you're still kind of figuring out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You're not there yet, then I would encourage you just sit this one out. This is for, for Christ followers. Um, but having said that, if you want to become a Christian, you want to cross that line of faith, you, you want to become a follower of Jesus, then I want to encourage you, uh, as you may have done already in the sermon, but, but pay attention to these next few moments and then take communion with us uh, as your first act of, uh, of obedience and repentance and understanding really what this means and applying it to your life. Okay, so, so you're welcome to join us in that sense. But for us, uh, friends, today, uh, when we consider our ways, you know, that's how we started today. Consider your ways, God said to the people of Haggai. When we consider our ways, and con our, our, we know that we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of His standards. We, we don't always bring God glory, and, and, and our actions don't always please Him. Um, and, and we know that, that God came to fix that problem in the person of His Son, Jesus. He chased after us, uh, and, and Jesus wasn't just chastened. No, it was far worse. He, he was punished for our sins in our place and although he lived a perfect life actually if you would consider his ways he would score a hundred percent nothing wrong with his ways he lived a perfect life but then he paid the penalty 
for my imperfect life and for your imperfect life. And in living our life for us and then dying our death, He did all the work that's required of us. That's an, an, an amazing thing. So now you and I, we can actually work with God because our sin is paid for. He fills us with His Spirit, as we'll pray for that in the end today. And He's now with us. We are now working with God. We're no longer working for God's love and forgiveness. In Christ, we have God's love and forgiveness. You know, in the days of Haggai, the temple was the place where the Lord would take pleasure in the sacrifices that were brought. He would say, yeah, this is sufficient. The blood that was shed here by these animals will atone for your sin for a season. And, and it's the place, of course, where God's glory, His presence dwelt amongst His people. And we know that Jesus is that final temple. Jesus is the final sacrifice that when He died, God was pleased to, and, and, and Jesus was able to say, it is finished, that He paid the penalty for my sin in full. It was a final sacrifice, pleasing. It was pleasing to God uh, so that He could declare you and me free. He could declare us forgiven. That is an amazing thing, and that is what we celebrate now. So I want you to take in this truth with uh, bread and with juice, uh, and I want you to celebrate. And as you do this, I want you to feed on Jesus in your hearts by faith. What that means is you, I want you to say, Lord, I'm satisfied in you completely. I am most satisfied when you are most glorified. And that's when I deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Because that's what he did for you and me. Let it, let's enjoy him now together. Okay, well, in closing, uh, as mentioned before, you know, God doesn't only give us the motive to change, but He also gives us the means, and that is by and through His powerful Spirit in, in us. And even as a remnant, you know, if you uh, add up all of the city gators together, we're actually a, a, a tiny, a small handful of people. But we know that if God is in us and works through us, He can accomplish great things. And so I would love to end off now just to create an opportunity, a moment, for us to, to ask God to fill us with His Spirit and to stir us as He stirred those people before so that we may be a people who seek His kingdom first so that we may practically display God being given glory and for Him to take pleasure in, in, our, in our endeavors in every aspect of our life. You know, Whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever we do, that we would truly be a church that builds His house. What that means is, is we advance His kingdom. We bring people to the glories of Jesus. We, 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 uh, we disciple them and we, we turn them into living stones, as the Bible says, so that they can also be built into the temple, the, the, the church, the, the kingdom of God. And so won't you take this moment now, maybe change your posture uh, as we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Maybe you've never been filled with the Spirit and this could be an opportunity where, where you ask and invite God to, to come into your life in, in that way. It's something the Bible encourages us to do regularly to, so that He would fill us up so that He could pour us out so that we would be filled up again. Um, and so, so we want to be filled and empowered by Him now. And it's a very simple prayer, but as you change posture, maybe close your eyes. Maybe raise your hands, maybe kneel. Whatever you do, don't stay the same. Make, make this moment count. And, and we're just going to wait for a moment and then we'll probably transition into a song right after I just declare a, a verse over us together. But um, let's, let's, let's take some time right now and invite the Holy Spirit 
into our lives, into our lounges, into wherever we find ourselves now. So close your eyes and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Come now and fill us. Stir us so that we may pursue your kingdom in power. Pursue your kingdom as priority. We need you. We need an inside out changing. We don't want to try this with our outside efforts. It'll eventually run dry. We'll run out of energy. We'll, 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 we'll mess up. But when you come in and change us from the inside out, there's lasting change. Come now, Holy Spirit. Fill us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to the first half of verse 17 says, and I pray this over you and I, and I speak this over us. We bow our knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.